Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. And I'm just going to invite up Becca to do the reading. So it's from Luke chapter 15. So if you want to grab your Bibles again, that'd be great. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the cat fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wonderful to have the word of the Lord read so well, isn't it? Thanks, Rebecca. Well, I feel my job as a father, we're talking about a father and two sons is complete with Jacob winning that game. Uh, the Lord can take me now. I'm ready. There we go. Um, sense of fear and trembling as you come to the prodigal son story. Um, I think it's the greatest story ever told, is it not? Is there a better short story in history? Every culture, every generation gravitates towards it, gets struck by it again and again and again and again. The profundities, we can never really get to the bottom of it. Why? Because it tells us everything you need to know about a relationship with God and how to get it wrong. Every human attempt to relate to God is wrong. That's what the story tells us. Every effort humans have ever made to relate to God is wrong. The story of the prodigal sons, not sons, sons, two sons, both of them are lost. Both of them get it wrong. Both of them are alienated from the father. Jesus, like yesterday in the stories, Mary, Martha, Simon, and the woman, wants to compare and contrast. But in this story, in one sense, they're both lost. But one gets found. God's grace comes to both of them, but only one of them seems to respond. It's the greatest story ever told because it teaches everything you need to know about a relationship with God and how to get it wrong. And then, just so you know where we're going, after looking at it this morning, we're going to then get back in city groups. City group leaders can just meet sort of more organizers and facilitators. We'll just do it amongst ourselves. If you're not in a city group, we'll get you in one. And we're going to discuss it in depth. I want us to mind this for our own souls, but also for our church. I want this story to just be part of our church, the, the, the way we can get relating to God wrong, how we can do mission, how we can do community, how we can do discipleship based on the grace of God and what we learn here. Now, you might be asking, Steve, I thought we were looking at the meals of Jesus. Where's the meal here? Uh, where's this meal that we're looking at? You know, Mary and Martha had a meal and, and, and Simon had a meal. And where's the meal? Well, it was read in verses 1 and 2. Did you notice, just there in 1 and 2, there's two groups of people. The sinners and tax collectors were all gathered around to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutters, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups of people. You have the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The sinners, well, they're like the woman yesterday, aren't they, in the story? The prostitute, the drunk, the thief, the sexually immoral, the irresponsible. In our culture, who are the sinners that everyone in our culture still agrees are sinners? Well, those on the sex offenders register, the pedophiles, the wife beaters, sinners. Tax collectors, well, they're the local Jewish people that have betrayed their people to cooperate with the Romans so they can collect taxes from the Jewish people for the Romans and line their own pockets as they do that. So they're abusing the system for their own gain. They are greedy and typically two-faced. They're modern culture. They're the money-grabbing lawyers, the deceitful bankers, the corrupt politicians of our day. 
Sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees and teachers of the law. These are the religious elite in Israel. They're experts in the religion. They know the Old Testament law better than any of us would have known it. They're whiter than white. They're the moralists. And what's Jesus doing? Did you notice? He is teaching the sinners and tax collectors, and he's eating with them. To eat with someone, we started to think about this yesterday, is a moment of welcome and acceptance and intimacy and, 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 and embrace. And to teach them is to say, I'll be your rabbi and you can be my follower. So what are the Pharisees and teachers of the law doing as he eats and teaches with sinners and tax collectors? They are muttering and grumbling and complaining at a distance. He shouldn't be welcoming those types of people. He shouldn't be training those to be disciples. And into that context of two groups of people, one group that's eating and listening, right close up to Jesus, and another group that's grumbling and complaining and judging at a distance, Jesus tells a story not of one son, but of two sons that represent the two groups. But the sting in the story is that the elder brother is more lost than the younger brother. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are more lost than the sinners and the tax collectors. So it starts off with the younger brother. Act 1, verses 12 to 24. And the story kicks off with the younger son saying, Father, give me my share of the estate, verse 11. Now, when the younger son uh, says this to his father, it would have shocked and astounded the original hearers because to ask for your father's estate was to wish your father dead. When did a father receive? Uh, when did the son receive the estate from the father? When the father was dead? So to say, I want your estate is to say, I don't want you. Go, you can kind of die. Now, as you've just found out, I'm a father of a boy. If he was to grow up to me and say, Dad, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want a relationship. In fact, I wish you were dead because all I want is your things. Is there anything more agonizing for a father to hear? You pour your whole life into your children, and all they say at the end is, I don't want a relationship. Just give me your stuff. The agony of rejected love. That's what the father in this story experiences. But if the start of verse 12 is shocking, the son asking for the estate, the second part is more shocking. If you're an ancient Middle Eastern culture and you understand what's going on. Because what the father should have done is he should have exploded and driven the boy out of the house with verbal, physical and violent blows. The boy should have been taught a lesson. No, you cannot have it, and you will get in line. But that's not what we read. Verse 12. So he divided his property between them. The shock of the listeners would be more on the father's response to the shocking request of the son. Instead of retaliating to suppress the pain he feels of rejection, he endures the agony of rejected love as a father. Now, in those days, the elder son would have inherited a double portion. So the younger son walks off with a third of the father's wealth. And what happens? The story goes that he goes to a far-off exotic land, squanders his wealth on wild, extravagant, luxurious, and wasteful living, eating, drinking, being merry, spending all his money on prostitutes. And then suffering comes to his life. It's a kind of COVID moment, isn't it? A famine. And quickly things spiral out of control. The money runs out, and he ends up in a pigsty, longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Not only has he insulted his father by wishing him dead, he's now wasted 
the wealth and possessions that were built up over generations of hard work who had all the previous family members who had cultivated that land gone because he was wasteful as a son, a complete disgrace to his family. And notice he ends up in the worst place imaginable for a Jew. Imagine the disgust of these Pharisees and teachers of the law as they listen to this story and where does the Jewish boy end up with pigs? You're not allowed to eat pigs. And then he wants to eat the food the pigs. It's just, it's supposed to disgust Jewish people. This man is a disgrace, not just to his family, but to the wider community that he represents. So the younger brother has descended into a hell all of his own doing. What happens next? He comes to his senses and says, listen, what am I doing here? How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? I'm starving to death. I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he gets up and off he goes. Notice what the son says or what he doesn't say. He's not going to say he's going to come back as a son. He knows he's not worthy of that. He also doesn't say he's going to come back as a slave who would have been owned by the father and the father's household. I'm not going to be a son. I'm not going to be a slave. He says, I'm going to be a hired worker. Now, a hired worker didn't live in the home, but in the city. And the hired worker would have earned a wage on the estate. In other words, he's going to say to his father, let me pay you back little by little over time as a hired worker all the money I wasted. Let me compensate for my errors. Let me cancel my debt. Little by little, let me earn my way back into the family and to being a son. There's clearly remorse. There's clearly desire for change. He knows he's sinned. He knows he's turning back to the father, but he has a self-atonement, self-improvement plan to get back into the family. He wants to remain in control as he turns back. He wants to sort out his own mess. This is counterfeit repentance that unfortunately many of us have done many times. I know I've messed up. I know I've got remorse in my heart. I know I want to turn back and here's how I am going to atone and improve so God will accept me. You know you've done wrong. You feel the pangs of guilt and remorse and you look for a way to remain in control as you self-atone and improve. Counterfeit repentance, example one. Now, the son had no guarantee of what would happen as, as he made his journey back to the homeland, his head hung low and reciting his self-atonement plan, self-improvement plan to his father. And, you know, would the elders of the town who guarded the city gate reject him before he entered? Would his peers, those he'd grown up with in schools and kicked a football about in the yard, would they mock him and shame him? Like, what have you done? You waste of time. Would his father even have him back or would he finally see sense and beat him and send him away? And then what about the elder brother? How would he react? You know, the elder brother's dynamic. The son had no assurance that he was going to be restored to the community, to his father or his brother. But what choice did this younger son have? He's at the end of himself. He has no option, so he has to head home. And what happens next breaks every conception of what God is like. As many commentators have commented, the father acts more like a mother than a Middle Eastern patriarchal man. The ancient philosopher Aristotle said, great men never run in public. 
not this man. He picks up his robes. He bears his legs. Everyone in the community can see him. He doesn't care the disgrace and humiliation. He's looked out every day for that son, hoping the son might return. And when he sees him at a distance, he's filled with compassion and he runs and bears more disgrace in that culture. When he meets the son, we read the father throws his arms around him, kisses him, symbols of forgiveness and reconciliation and intimacy. Now, the younger son, this is my sort of answer, you know, his father's kissing him, has wrapped his arms around him, has been like, no, 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 wait, I've got to get my PowerPoint out with my self-improvement plan and atonement plan. Back off, father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be. Look at my points of my self-improvement plan. And he doesn't get to the end of the speech, do you notice? He's interrupted by grace. That's what grace does. You come back to God. Here's what I'm going to do. It's a sword of dark. And God says, shh, get a ring. Get a robe. Let's get some sandals. Where's the fattened calf? You don't earn your way back in this family. I bring you back by grace. Quick, bring the best robe. I'm going to endure more shame, and I'm going to count every cost to reinstate you, not as a hired worker, but as my son. There's a kiss and embrace. There's a robe to cover the pig stains and the smell from the walk. There's a ring, a symbol of belonging to the family. There's sandals, a symbol of dignity and worth. And there's a feast with the fattened calf because the fattened calf is required because the whole community needs to come along and feast. The father's saying, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up, have a bath, prove yourself. I'm going to hug you and kiss you and give you all these lavish gifts and a party. You're not going to earn your way back. I'm going to bring you back. So the whole town, verse 24, starts to celebrate because the son is back. He was lost, he's found, he's dead and he's alive. The whole town is there. Bar one. Scene two. The elder brother, verse 25. Whilst the father and the son and the whole community are feasting on the fattened calf, what's the elder brother doing? Verse 25, he's at work in the field. He's refusing to go back in, verse 28. It's the biggest party of the father's life. You know, when I got married, my older brother was my best man. If my elder brother hadn't turned up, how would I fully enjoyed our wedding? How would my pet... You know, for the father to throw the biggest feast of his life and the elder son not be there. So notice again, the father has to endure the agony of rejected love. Everyone would have noticed gossiping around this great party. Where's the elder brother? He's supposed to be. And he refuses to go in. It's a calculated insult to the father. So what happens? What happens? Look at it there in the Bible. So the father went out and pleaded with him. Once again, the father initiates. See, the father went out to the younger son. The father goes out to the elder son. The father's always initiating. He's never got his... He's going out in love, our great initiating father. And, he, and as the son speaks to the, to the father, what's, what really annoys him? Did you pick it up in the story? It's the fattened calf. Verse 29, I haven't even had a goat, let alone a fattened calf. The elder brother is so angry about this fattened calf. Well, why is the fattened calf a big deal? Well, it's probable that the fattened calf was reserved for what? His wedding day. 
And now it's been killed for his stupid younger brother who squandered his virginity on prostitutes when this fat and calf was supposed to be for the older brother's wedding. The father's done the most extravagant thing, extravagant thing possible to welcome back his younger son. And the hardworking elder brother has been keeping the family estate going while this stupid younger brother was off squandering all its wealth. And he'd kept it all going. He doesn't even get a goat. So the father tries to help him understand from a place of his heart. He says in verse 28, my, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story finishes. What happens next? We don't know. The greatest story ever told remains unfinished. Jesus often does this. He leaves stories in a place of tension. So you feel the tension. You're invited into the story. So you finish the story. It's often Jesus' way. Does the older brother come back into the family home? We don't know, but will you? Will the family be reunited as a three? We don't know, but will you come and join in? The story's left unfinished with the father initiating and pleading with the elder brother. It finishes in a place of tension because we're supposed to finish it, or more accurately, the original hearers. Remember the two groups? The sinners and the tax collectors. Well, they're the younger brother. What are they doing? They're eating with Jesus. They're having a feast. They're in the feast of the Father. And they're enjoying the teaching of Jesus. They've been found. They're inside the kingdom. They're Mary. They're the sinful woman. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws, well, they're the older brother. And guess what they're doing? They're hard at work in the fields, doing all the right things for God. And they're complaining and grumbling at a distance, like the elder brother was at a distance from the party, at Jesus as they watch him eat with those sinners. And they're refusing to come in. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm like the father right now, initiating with you, the elder brother, saying to you Pharisees and teachers of the law, Will you come and join me next to the sinners so you can eat too? And we notice there, therefore, that Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He'll go to anyone. As hard-hearted or as self-right, he'll still come to you. He always initiates. How dramatic a story is this? The man of moral rectitude is lost, but the lover of prostitutes is feasting with the father. Jesus is saying both sons are lost, both sons are alienated from the father, but the moral, hard-working elder brother is more lost because he's blind to his lostness. Like Martha was blind, like Simon was blind. Think about it. We all know what the younger brother's sins look like, don't we? It's wild living, it's headedness, it's drunkenness, it's sexual morality, it's greed, it's breaking all of the laws. It's obvious, it's notorious. It's the woman of Luke 7, a woman of the city she was called. But what about the sins of the law-abiding elder brother, which means you're more lost than that? Mm, they're harder to find. That's why we can't find them. And that's why we don't know. And that's why we're more lost. Let's think about three things in regards to the lostness that's lurking beneath. Firstly, the relationship to his father, the, the elder brother has. Verse 29. Do you see? He doesn't even address his father as father. Look! What a way to speak to your father. Look! All these years I've been what? Slaving for you. 
That's not the language of a son, is it? He's never related to his father as a father. He's always related to his father as a slave. He's seen his father as a hard taskmaster. But everything in the story tells you that is not the father he has. But it's the one he's projected onto his father. And the father right to the end is so tender. And I love the way Rebecca pulled this out. My son. Right at the end, there's still the intimate call of the father saying, my son. He wants to embrace him as a son, not a slave. But what is the older brother doing? He's relating to God, not as a loving father, as a hard taskmaster. And that's why he says, I never disobeyed your orders. And that's how elder brothers relate to God if he's not their father. It's about not disobeying the orders. That's as far as the relationship goes. What are the orders and I won't disobey? In other words, he doesn't want the father either. He wants the father's things. He's trying to obey God to get stuff from God. And that's why he's mad about that fattened calf because he thinks he deserves it. He's, God's in his debt now. The father's like, look at what I've done for you. Now you own me. Elder brothers, every, much as, as, uh, every little bit as much as younger brothers, use God for their own ends. They too want control. They want leverage over God. They think all their moral living and hard work means, well, now, God, you owe me this, this, and this. That's his relationship to his father. Secondly, his relationship to his younger brother. Well, he said, look to his father, but he can't even address his son as a brother. His younger brother as a brother, he says, but when this son of yours. You see what he's saying? He's disowned. He's disowned the younger son. He's, he's no longer my family. I don't even count him as a brother. When this son of he's nothing to do with my, me. Has squandered your property on prostitutes, you know. And that's what other brothers do. They're self-righteous. They divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys, the moral guys and the immoral guys, the conservative guys and the liberal guys, and they quickly write off and disown anyone that's not like them and, 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 and have absolutely no tolerance and grace for those who made mistakes because those mistakes only validate what they already thought. So elder brothers are not only using God for their own ends, they're also horrifically self-righteous and they judge and despise those they feel superior to. What about his relationship to himself? Oh, back to one. Maybe most interesting in our modern culture. Firstly, we learn there's a restless anger in the elder brother. Because you see, he's the good guy and the world and everyone around him doesn't understand. No one knows how, under, how hard I work and how good I've been. And there's this restless, restless latent anger and a little bit of grace towards someone that doesn't deserve it. And poof, it's there. Judging. And notice the reason for the elder brother's unhappiness is not because of his sins, but because of his goodness. His self-righteousness makes him so angry. It's just bubbling below the surface, waiting to come out. Secondly, there's joyless obedience. Yes, elder brothers live moral lives and they do the right things, but there's nothing like the woman in the story yesterday. There's no joy, there's no love, there's no excitement, there's no passion, there's no awe. It's about never disobeying the orders. All these years I've been slaving. It's joyless. It's suffocating. And thirdly, there's anxious performance. 
Whilst they're always doing the right things, they have a great need to prove themselves and justify themselves that they are doing the right things. Have they done enough? What do people think? So there's an anxiety within. They seem so confident and whiter than white on the outside, but inside they feel a great need to impress. I have never disobeyed your orders. Have you understood that? That's how good I am. That's how our older brothers feel and talk. What keeps the elder brother from Jesus is not his sins, but his good deeds. Elder brothers find it hard to be part of the kingdom of God, not in spite of their goodness, but because of their goodness. Elder brothers repent of sins, of course they do, but Jesus wants them to repent of the reasons they do their good deeds. That self-righteous spirit, that desire to put God in their debt, that need to prove themselves. Elder brothers, too, only have counterfeit repentance because it's just from the external acts. It's not from the internal attitudes and motivations which drive all our acts. What a story. You have two brothers. One breaks all the rules, one keeps all the rules. One chooses a path of self-discovery, the other of moral conformity. Both are lost. One in his badness, the other in his goodness. Both are alienated from the father, but both want the f- not want the father and a relationship with him, but the father's things. Both are trying to control life. And they both have a counterfeit understanding of repentance. And Jesus calls them both, and the father initiates to them both. Now think for a moment, given everything we, given everything we know about the older brother, why do you imagine the younger brother ran away? Because it was insufferable to live without elder brother. All those rules, all that pointing the finger, all that slaving, all that never disobeying. It must have been intolerable to live in the house with that elder brother. He kicks off the shackles of moral conformity, much like many have in the last 30 years in Ireland. Because it was insufferable living with institutional religion and rules that had no relationship and warmth. And what has people in Ireland done? They've ran the way of the younger brother. It's a self-discovery and throwing it all off. And but in the rejection of moral conformity into a path of self-discovery, he doesn't find fulfillment. He doesn't find happiness and security. And that is what many in our culture are finding. And we as a church mustn't look or smell anything like elder brothers if they're going to come back. I reckon the younger brother was terrified to come back because he could only think of what the older brother was going to do. If we're going to be a missionary church, we've got to figure this one out. Younger brothers don't go anywhere near elder brothers. Tertullian, the early church father, said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two opposite errors of legalism and license, of religion and a religion of moral conformity or self-discovery, of conservatism or liberalism. Both are wrong. So building on the story of last night, there's two false paradigms. There's the way of the irreligion, which says, I don't have to obey anyone but myself. That's where most of Ireland is today, younger brothers. There's the way of religion that says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Look how hard I've worked now. I deserve a place. But Jesus is talking about another way altogether. The humble are in and the proud are out. Those who are lost are in and those who think they're sorted are out. It's the way of the gospel which says I'm accepted by the initiating love of the Father who will not let me pay, but pays it all for me. 
endures every bit of rejected love and shame to bring me back into the family. And out of that amazing experience of embrace and relationship, like the woman, I pour out a life of love and worship. So how do we avoid the two thieves that steal the real gospel? Well, it's the same as last night. You have to be melted by what it costs to bring you home. Do you see it in verse 31? Everything I have is yours, the Father says to the Son. And that's the truth, remember? That's the true statement. Because the younger brother's taken his third. So everything else the Father has belongs to the elder son. Every robe, every ring, every sandal, every fattened calf, it all belongs to the elder brothers. In other words, there was a cost to bring the younger brother home. Yes, the cost of the shame of the father who must have experienced, but the cost to the elder brother who had to pick up the tab because everything the father owns is his. And this feast and this party is all with the son's possessions. Forgiveness is not easy. It always has a cost. Someone has to pay. But poor kid, he encounters an angry, self-righteous, intimidating elder brother. The younger brother who'd made a mess of his life doesn't have an elder brother who wants to pay. But we do. Everything the father owns, he gave to the son. But the son willingly gave it all up for us. And what does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time Jesus doesn't call God his father. He lost his sonship. He was abandoned by his father. So you could receive that robe of righteousness. You could receive the kiss of embrace. You could receive sandals of your status and worth in, in Jesus. He was disgraced and banished so we could be embraced and loved. And loved. He was defiled so we could be covered. Not through our own self-atonement plans and self-improvement plans, but by a gift of grace of the Father who runs towards us again and again in the person of his Son and kisses us by his Holy Spirit. That's what theologians think a kiss represents. The love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He had everything the Father had, but he lost it all so we could enjoy the feast. It's only when you see that, that whether you're an elder brother or a younger brother, your heart starts to change and you relate to God as a father. The cross of Christ humbles you to the ground because of your sin. He had to pay but in the same moment exalts you to the heavens because of his love he was glad to pay. The key difference between a Christian and a Pharisee is motivation. Both are going to church, both are reading their Bibles, both are praying, both are giving money away, both are serving in Sunday serving teams, both attend city groups, both go on weekends away. One is trying to do all those things to put God in their debt, to bring a level of control to what now God has to do for them. The other one is doing it out of grateful joy of what God has already done for them. The Christian is just trying to know and resemble and enjoy God, not trying to get leverage over God. So what does this mean 
for day-to-day life? How do we apply this truth to our lives and our church? How do we become a church where elder brothers and younger brothers are all welcomed in and we model the third way of the gospel? Well, if you're a younger brother, and by the way, I'm both. Huh? I remember doing this story once and I said, who do you relate to? And the person said, the father. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> None of us are the father, okay? <laughs> we are either one or both sons. <laughs> Application, just to be clear. <laughs> In a moment, we'll do a city group discussion. Yeah, we're all the father. It's great. <laughs> That's what elder brothers think, so just so you know. Okay, if you're a younger brother, uh, you probably notice, but self-discovery and throwing off the shackles is not the answer. And you've probably tried it. But make sure your repentance as you come back to God isn't counterfeit with a self-improvement, self-atonement plan. Feel the guilt. Know that you're in a bad place. Turn back to God but then come back through the grace of the cross and him paying for you and know that it's finished and there's no condemnation and you can be set free now. You don't have to wait for ages outside the father's house trying to pay your way back in. You're in because another son paid for you. And out of grateful joy, learn to commit your life in obedience to what Jesus asks of you and the things that you find hard, remember the cross and what he paid when you have to count a cost. That's younger brothers. Elder brothers, well, moral conformity is not the answer, is it? Just, I need to work a bit harder, read my Bible a bit more, pray a bit more. That's the Martha way we learned yesterday. So make sure your repentance isn't counterfeit by learning to repent of things besides sins. Pharisees repent of sins. They feel awful about their sins. Elder brothers have a list of sins. It's not very long, but they have that list of sins, and they repent of them. But Christians, we must learn to repent not only for the things we've done wrong, but for the reasons we did right. The desire to control God. The desire to put God in our leverage. The desire to feel better about ourselves. We must repent of our self-righteousness, our joyless obedience, our restless anger, our anxious performance that reveal that we're not relating to God as a father, but as a hard taskmaster. But more than all that, more than understanding true repentance, whether you're an elder or a younger brother, the number one application in my mind of the prodigal son story is this. We must all get to know our father a bit better and our big brother a bit better. It's as we misunderstanding who they are that everything else goes wrong. Get to know their characters and their love and their compassion. Be amazed at their grace. Experience the love of the father kissing you as the spirit sheds abroad his love in your heart. So intimate and tender. Survey the wonder of the cross on which the prince of glory died so you can be robed in righteousness. Rejoice in your status, not as a slave, not as a hired worker, but as a child of God with a seat at the feast of your father in full assurance, not just that you're reconciled to him, but that you're deeply loved by him and cherished. And when God looks at you in Christ, those of us have put our faith in Jesus, what is his heart for us? I just think this is such a great verse. Oops, not that one. It's on your handout. The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves you. What does he do? He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The Father we have right now in heaven, because we are seated in Christ in the heavenly realms, and he looks at Christ and he rejoices over him. He rejoices over us with singing. So as we're singing songs to our Father later, remember he's singing a song about how much he loves you. Isn't that a marvelous thought? How great is our God. Let me pray. I invite the band back and we'll sing a song or two to celebrate our great God.
If you want to stand, we'll just have a moment of pause and quiet just to reflect on something in that story that has touched your heart. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not only our Savior who cleanses us from our sins. You're not only our Lord who teaches us the paths of righteousness. You are the greatest storyteller, and you know how to get into our hearts, to unpick our hearts of all those false ways of relating to you, all that counterfeit repentance, all the misconceptions we have about you or about our Father. And in your grace, you interrupt us again and again and again to draw us back to you. So we thank you for these moments this morning to reflect on this story. We pray as we sing now and as we go into our discussions, this story would saturate into every part of our being, every part of our church, and would lay a foundation and create a DNA that we would not be like the elder brothers and we'd not be like the younger brothers because we've understood our relationship to our elder brother and our heavenly father. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.